Welcome to Coffee Up by Market Lane Coffee, a podcast for our growing community of like-minded businesses who want to serve delicious, sustainable, and ethically sourced coffees. My name's Christian. This is the third episode from our three-part series on origin, variety, and process. Throughout this series, Tyson and I will catch up with Jason, Margalene's co-founder, to discuss how coffee's origin, its variety, and the way that its process can differ greatly from region to region. In today's episode, Tyson and Jason will be covering the ways in which coffee is produced and what results processing methods have on different coffee profiles. To give you an idea, the same coffee cherry can be produced in many different ways and each method will result in a wildly different cup of coffee. Some processing methods will create more balance and smoothness, others will highlight a coffee's fruit qualities. They'll also cover the geographical, cultural and historical factors that may lead a producer to choose one processing method over another. And with that, let's jump in. So Jason, what do we mean when we talk about coffee processing? So coffee processing is essentially just how we remove the seed of the fruit out of the fruit and get it to a stage where we can export it. So it's all the steps in between picking the fruit and getting it into a ship and sending it off to Australia. There are three main sort of types of um, processing. Um, the first one's called washed, um, where and that's essentially where you remove either mechanically or through a type of fermentation um, the fruit and also any of the mucilage. Um, the second is called pulp natural, and that's where you remove the skin of the fruit, most of it, but then you dry the coffee um, just out on the patios as it is like that. So the fruit will dry with a little bit of mucilage on the, um, on the parchment. The third is called natural process. Uh, it's called natural process because you basically just pick the cherry and then you leave the cherry out to dry. So it's very, very simplified for our customers and for us to talk about. We actually don't have a very good language about describing the process of processing uh, accurately at all. So when we say washed, we broadly just mean the, uh, the f- skin of the fruit, most of the pulp and the um, mucilage is removed either through fermentation or mechanically, but we don't describe how how it's soaked in water. Or we don't describe whether it's a you know whether it's a dry fermentation. We don't describe whether it's actually being washed properly or whether it's being used. Whether there's a mechanical demucilage machine being used. Mm-hmm. So there's all these variations in in how you can sort of wash coffee to produce a washed coffee. Mm-hmm. If you know what I mean. And a lot of them have to do with how much water is available and the um, the cultural settings in, in, in where the coffee is processed. Mm. So for washed, you can, there, there are, it, it's done it almost differently in every single farm that I've been to. You know, there's not like one process way of doing it. Um, but yeah, we don't have a good language to talk about it. So yeah. Yeah, we're starting, I feel like we're starting to see, um, I guess, more specificity on different coffees, you know, from us and from other roasters. Is that something that you think uh, is, is helpful or...? Well, I think it would be if it was accurate, but I, I, I have a hard time seeing some of the new fermentation labels that are out there um, because I think they're broadly inaccurate and um, it, it does make it difficult because um, you can start to see, I mean, we've started to see things like anaerobic fermentation as, as a lot of coffee, um, but the other day I saw a coffee that was aerobically fermented. And of course, fermentation is a process without oxygen. So I don't know what that's des- what process that's describing, but it doesn't really help. So mm. 
Uh, I'm not sure what the answer is. I think I think probably leaving it in one of the three categories. And, w- and what we're doing at Marcolin is we're trying to just leave it in one of the three categories: washed, pulp, natural, or natural. And then describing the process more more clearly with more words um, in you know on our website or in the body of the text somewhere, so we can actually say you know, it's fermented for 48 hours and then it's run through cold water and then it, it rests in, in cold water for another 72 hours before it's taken out and dried. So we can sort of describe the process uh, more accurately. And I guess going back to those, I guess, three main uh, processes, uh, how do each of those processes impact the way that the coffee will taste in your cup? In in a really broad way, um, a natural processed coffee will, will almost always add quite a bit more fruit character to the, to the coffee. Um, it can be from, you know, really sort of boozy, sort of funky fruit to just a very mild sort of cherry flavor that's influenced in the, in the cup. Um, again, broadly, and, and there's a whole range of different flavors that come out, but Pulp Natural can, can produce, you know, a much heavier, a heavier mouthful than, than washed, a mouthfeel than washed, um, and sometimes more fruit character as well. And then typically with washed, people tend to say that it produces a coffee that most, I guess, allows you to taste the origin character of the coffee, the varietal character of the coffee, um, sort of the, you know, the true expression of the coffee itself. Um, but there are always exceptions to the rule. And, and one, one exception, which I think is really interesting, is um, the coffee we had from Colombia recently called Los Palomas um, from Urao in Antioquia. And... We talked to Leonardo for a long time about, you know, how the processing is done. And, and he's actually a microbiologist, so he has a really, you know, firm understanding of what what happens to the coffee as it's being processed. But he really wanted to process the coffee in the way that it's been done in Urao for decades. You know, he wanted mm-hmm. to use the traditional method and have the coffee taste as a true expression of Urao or Antioquia. And I thought that was really interesting because it's a very specific processing method that I think adds a lot to the flavor of the coffee as well. Even though it's washed, because of the way it's done, it, it does add a lot of wininess and um, sweetness to the, to the cup. So Jason, what are the main factors that would determine what processing method would be best suited for a particular farm or region? Well, it's very difficult to say what would be best suited um, to a particular farm or region, but I can definitely say that there are some factors which determine how the how they decide to to process the coffee in a particular way. And the biggest one is obviously how it's been done traditionally in that in that area, that region, or the country. So it's unusual for um, coffee in Colombia to be produced using the natural process, and. There are some good reasons for that. Uh, just as it's very unusual to go to Harar and see some washed processed coffee. A lot of it has to do with the water supply. So if there's a really good, easy supply of fresh water, then it's much easier for producers to use that water to you know, move coffee about, to use it for their fermentation tanks, to wash the coffee. Obviously, if there's no water around, then they just can't do it. So I think the amount of free water plays a big part and the, uh, the cultural sort of historical um, factors also play a big part. Typically, you don't see a huge amount of experimentation on farms um, because it's risky, you know. So once, once a processing method has been found to work, you don't typically see people trying other ways because it might fail, 
you know, mm. and for, for us, it's easy to say, it'd be really interesting to taste this and this and this, except that it's the producer's entire, you know, income for the year. It's so a huge risk. Yeah. It can be a really huge risk. And for places where there are good reasons why they don't do it, like doing natural process in Colombia, um, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, you know, mm. and, and typically roasters and buyers haven't been that supportive monetarily um, of producers in these experiments. And we should be if we mm. want, if we want to see them. So even despite the uh, the incredibly high risk, it seems that more recently we're starting to see a number of coffee producers experiment with different processing methods. What do you think is driving these producers to try different things? Well, I think it's coming from the buyers or consuming countries. So I think most of the demand is coming from there um, where, you know, maybe roasters, but also brokers would, would say, you know, there's been a lot of interest in this type of processing. Um, do you have any coffees that you process in this way? Um, and I think, I, I don't know why it's started to happen, but I, I think people are starting to look for, well, I think there's a misconception that, you know, this will really revolutionize or change the flavor of coffee. And I don't know that it's necessarily going to. Um, and part of the reason for that is that these small lots that are being produced in, you know, uh, say a carbonic maceration fermentation where they have a very small, you know, temperature controlled area where they're letting the coffee sort of ferment in controlled conditions. It's very difficult to roll out on a large scale. So those sorts of experiments and those sorts of processing methods are really only good for a few hundred kilos. So it can be interesting and it can be fine, but I think ultimately the producer is going to have to find a way to process coffee in a way that's economical for them and in a way that's economical for the exporters, the importers and the roasters as well. And I think that means larger volume. Um, we, yeah, we, we do see some small lots that are quite expensive coming through and they're interesting, but I, I just don't really see how that can be, um, you know, part of the future for coffee, mm. to be honest. And I guess um, over the last uh, couple of years, we've we've actually seen a fair few different processing methods from Bolivia. One example that comes to mind is the cocoa natural processing method. Can you tell us a bit more about what cocoa natural processing is? Yeah, so um, AgriCafe or the Rodriguez family, they um, actually have a, a history of processing peanuts. So they, they have... Um, you know, they're quite familiar with the process of it and um, doing it on quite a large scale. And one of the bits of kit was a, um, a large sort of drying machine, which is basically, it's pretty much the size of a pallet or like a fruit pallet or maybe a bit bigger, um, about two meters by two meters and then, you know, a meter and a half tall. And it's got a mesh bottom and it's fan forced with a small gas burner on the bottom. And you can control the amount of airflow, you can control the heat and Basically, it allows for a really controlled um, drying. So it's a very compact bed of coffee um, that you can keep basically inside and dry in a you know relatively controlled environment. And they found a number of benefits with that. Is that one, it, it dries really homogeneously because the coffee is quite densely packed. Um, the moisture between the beans is is very similar. Whereas if you can imagine, imagine you know, sort of a, a mound of coffee on a patio or rows of coffee on a patio, there's some that's more exposed to airflow mm. than others. Um, and typically with, you know, patio drying, they'll actually bundle everything up at nighttime to sort of homogenize everything again. Yeah. 
Um, and then the, the temperature is also a really important factor. So mechanical drying typically is a bad name in specialty coffee. Um, and I think probably rightly so because you would use a mechanical dryer if you wanted to dry your coffee quickly. Therefore, you would use higher temperatures. And you wouldn't necessarily run it at, you know, 30, 40, 50 degrees Celsius at those lower temperatures. Because what's the point, you know, if you can, if you can do it faster, you have the machine, so why not just do it faster? Mm. Um, but yeah, the Rodriguez family, they do run at that lower temperature and they do um, really focus on the quality of, um, of drying um, as it happens in there. So uh, from memory, I think they start the cherries out on the patio or on raised beds um, and let the initial moisture run out. So they'll let the um, sort of any, any moisture that the fruit's absorbed in the first part will run off on the, on the patios. And then they'll transfer them to the cocoa dryers um, for the remaining, you know, two or three days basically to dry them out. So in a previous podcast on Origin, we spoke about some of the challenges that uh, warming climate and unstable weather conditions was bringing to coffee-growing regions. What are some of the ways that this unpredictability is affecting how producers are processing their coffee? Well, in places like, uh, we, I mean, we, I talked about Tolima in the last episode where um, the rain periods have changed from being, you know, a wet season and a dry season to basically just always being a slightly wet season. Um, so... Um, they dry their coffee there actually uh, entirely undercover. So they have these, I guess, sort of parabolic um, plastic covered. Looks like um, a greenhouse kind of thing. Yeah, it's like a greenhouse. It can either be, in fact, a lot of the time they're on top of the roofs of their houses. So they would have their house underneath and they have the parabolic dryer on top of their roof and they'll dry the coffee basically on their roof. Um, somewhere movable and portable. Um, it, doesn't seem very practical after coming <laughs> from places like Ethiopia or Kenya, but um, but it's the only way they can do it because the rainfall is so unpredictable. They have to cover it um, pretty much all the time because there's a risk it will get wet and they'll have to mm. you know, extend the drying time out. And um, what role does uh, sorting have in coffee processing? It has a big role. So they sort coffee at multiple steps at multiple times, depending on the place. Bolivia, for example, we were talking about Bolivia before. So Bolivia, they will do um, basically selective picking. So that's the first form of, form of sorting. And once the cherry is picked, they'll, they'll go through it on plastic sheets on the ground and they'll pick out any greens or unripes or overripes or anything like that. They'll deliver that um, cherry to the, to the mill. Um, at that point, it's inspected for quality. So if it's coming from um, a producing partner of um, the Rodriguez family, so part of the Sol de la Mañana program, it'll be sort of graded at that point. Um, and then it's usually it's gone through the aquapulpa to be um, to be processed. That what, removes. What this. is an aquapulpa? <laughs> yeah, aquapulpa is a it's a mechanical way of removing the mucilage. So it talks about you know that you can do it through a fermentation process or a mechanical process. This uses a mechanical process to take the skin off, to take the mucilage off, and basically leave you with a coffee bean inside parchment that's ready to dry straight away. Mm. And the reason they use this is because it's quite fast. So they have limited space and. Um, and time during the harvest in Bolivia. So they need to actually process a lot of coffee very, very quickly. Um, so once it's done that, it, it, you know, it gets out to dry. There'll be some people picking over it again as it's drying. Um, and basically um, when it's, I think after, you know, a day or two, the 
the um, beans in parchment start to change color a little bit and go from a pale green sort of pea color to being that more sort of straw dried sort of parchment color. Um, but in those stages, there's times when it's really beneficial to actually pick through the coffee and, and pull out unripes and things like that, because they'll be particularly white. Um, I don't know if you've ever peeled a, a very old broad bean or something like that and noticed that the beans inside are white. It's a similar sort of thing. So they have to look, you know, either vibrant and green or, you know, homogenous in color. Um, but there's a lot of process, there's a lot of sorting done in the dry mill as well. We haven't really talked about that too much, but a dry mill will take the parchment off the coffee and then do a number of different sort of grading or sorting for it to make sure it's, um, make sure it's easy to roast is one sort of simple way of doing it. Um, but also to remove any other, um, like foreign objects or matter. Um, they'll do a number of steps. They'll do some gravity table sorting. So they'll have a table that shakes and the densest coffee will um, rise to the top and the lightest will fall off to the bottom. Um, and they'll do things like um, UV sorting as well. So the dry mill in Agri Cafe, they'll have a basically a conveyor belt with a number of workers sitting on either side of the table, on either side of the conveyor belt under a UV light. So it's, you know, the black lights yeah, that we well. see. Um, and this is sort of the last step. And any coffee that um, comes up white under the UV light, they'll pick out. But there's a lot. In Brazil, they'll use laser eye um, color sorters as well. So they'll put all the coffee through a laser sorter. Mm. And the laser will detect any sort of anomalies in terms of color or shape or a number of different things. Yeah, there's actually the, yeah, the last point, which I think is kind of interesting, is there's a um, Korean machine which works on roasted coffee as well, which is a, a laser color sorter so you can basically drop a bean through there it'll take a number of different photos of it from a number of different angles mm. and um, as you pour a whole batch of coffee through it will analyze every single bean and if it's if the bean meets a certain criteria like it's you know misshapen or it's an elephant shape or if it's a Quaker or something like that it will reject that one bean wow. and, <laughs> and but it, it runs at a, a very fast rate you know like 20 kilos per minute or something like that like a enough that you can put it on the back of a roasting machine so wow so when do Mark Lane get our uh, laser sorting machine yeah well I'm very excited about it so we're saving <laughs> we're saving up for it and hopefully we can afford it soon thanks so much for listening this was the last in our three-part series origin variety process Following this initial series, Tyson and I will be taking a deeper dive focusing on each of the countries that Marcoline purchases coffee from. We'll hear first-hand stories from our coffee buying team and learn a little bit more about the people who grow some of our favorite coffees. So if you like what you've been listening to, please consider subscribing so you won't miss out on an episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to catching up with you over a coffee soon.